My name is Chris Taylor. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Kelty's. It's been a while since we've been in John. Maybe you forgot where we were. Uh, we took, I think, three weeks off uh, to be in Luke during Christmas. Last week, I did kind of a New Year's resolution sermon on prayer and just prioritizing prayer for the believer. And now we're back in John, and we're in John 3, and you just heard the passage, John 3, 31 to 36. And the title of my sermon is, Jesus is the Greatest. He's the greatest. Here's the big idea. Jesus must increase and we must decrease. That's from John 3.30. I'll give you a little context later. Jesus must increase and we must decrease because he is above all. He is above all. Now, arguably, the most pressing question contemplated by humanity, I'm not saying it's the most important question, I think this is the question that humans think about, maybe more than any other question is this, how can I get to heaven? How can I get to heaven? And quite possibly, the second most contemplated question amongst humans is, what is heaven like? So how can I get there, and what is it like? And the answer to both of these questions is the same. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the way to heaven, And Jesus came to show us what heaven is like. Now, how can Jesus answer these two questions? How can I get to heaven? And what is heaven like? How can he do that? Or maybe better stated, what gives Jesus the right to be the answer to these two questions? It's because Jesus is the greatest. And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. Now, in order to truly understand and appreciate our passage, we must read it in context. So let's go back one verse. One verse, John 3.30. And this is where John the Baptist, I mean, John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was getting people ready for Jesus' coming. He was baptizing people, calling them to repent. The king's coming, get ready. But when the king came, his job was done, right? It was time for him to get out of the way, so to speak. And this is what John says. He must increase but I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. And then John, the beloved disciple who wrote this gospel, he speaks in John 3, 31 to 36, our passage. And what he's going to do in our passage is he's going to answer the question posed by verse 30. Why must Jesus increase and why must we decrease? And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see the answer to that question in our passage. Why must Jesus' increase become greater, and why must we become less? I want to look at six things from our text. Six things. Number one, again, we're answering the question, why must he increase and us become less? Why must Jesus become greater and us become less? Why? Well, number one, his position These are all P's, by the way, so this will be helpful. you got six P's. Number one, his position. He is above all. And this refers to Jesus' authority, his identity. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is what? Above all. He states it twice. Jesus is above all, and in case you forgot, he's what? Above all. Now, the phrase, he is above all, 
is repeated. Why? Why repeat something in the Bible? For emphasis. Now, many athletes have made the claim, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Right? But these claims are typically self-made, and they're always contested. People will always debate whether or not Michael Jordan or LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time, but we know the right answer is Michael Jordan. Oh, good. I'm in good company. All right. That might just show the age of this congregation as well. However, when applied to Jesus, there is no contesting it. He is the greatest, definitively the greatest. Why? Because, as our text shows us, he is above all. And this can only be said about who? This can only be said about Jesus. If you've given your heart, your allegiance to anyone or anything other than Jesus, then you are truly selling yourself short. Why? Because Jesus and Jesus alone is above all. He is the highest authority. He is matchless in his beauty, in his glory, in his splendor. Now, if you've been following along carefully in John, this has already been established, namely that Jesus is above all. Why is he above all? Why is he supreme? Again, what have we seen in John thus far? Let me review quickly. Will you permit that? Thank you. I want us to see already this has been established in John's gospel, namely that Jesus is above all. I'm going to go back to John 1, verse 3. Now, according to John 1, verse 3, without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator. He's the creator. Why is he above all? Because he's the, he made everything. He's the creator. Now, according to John 1, 4, in him was life. He came to bring life. He is the life giver. According to John 1, 12, those who receive him and believe in his name are given the right to become children of God. Wow. According to John 1, 29, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, we could stop there, but why stop there? Let's keep going. According to John 1.49, he is the Son of God, the King of Israel. According to John 3.14, he is the one who would be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And I'll give us one more. According to John 3.17, he was sent into the world that the world might be saved through him. So again, John wants us to see from the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is above all. And therefore, on the basis of that truth, he must increase and we must, what? We must decrease. We must decrease. Matt Carter says it well. He says Jesus is supreme. Nothing and no one is greater than Jesus. He has authority over all things. Everything has been put under his rule, under his control. Consider the majestic redwoods. Some standing more than 300 feet tall. Or soaring mountain peaks reaching five and a half miles high. Jesus is greater. He goes on to say, picture the crashing ocean waves or gigantic solar systems. Jesus is greater. Think about Nobel Prize winners or heads of state. 
Jesus is greater. Jesus is above all. He is supreme over all creation. Now, according to our passage, why is Jesus above all? And that brings us to our second point, our second P, his place. His place. Now, don't get me wrong here. We're not saying that Jesus had a beginning, okay? He's always been the eternal Son of God. But where did he come from? Where was he before the incarnation, before the Son of God became man? Where was he? He was in heaven. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. And now he talks about John the Baptist. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. I'll unpack that here shortly. But then he says again, he who comes from heaven is above all. So John really wants us to see, he wants us to get that Jesus is from above because he comes from above. Now, why is that significant that Jesus came from heaven? Jesus comes from heaven. Okay, what? What does that mean? Our second point is grounded in the first. Why is Jesus above all? Because he comes from above. It's due to his heavenly origins. He is God, the Lord of heaven. No one, everybody say no one. No one. Okay. No one is more qualified than Jesus to speak of heavenly things. Why? Because he came down from, he came down from heaven. As F.F. F. Bruce notes, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard in the heavenly sphere. Now, anybody born outside of Texas, raise your hand. Anybody born outside of Texas? Okay, a few of you. All right, that's good. One of my best friends is from Detroit, Michigan. I think we can argue, and I think we'd agree that where a person comes from qualifies them to speak of that place, right? I mean, if you've been born and raised in Lufkin, Texas, I think you are qualified to speak on Lufkin, Texas. If someone came to you and said, hey, what's Lufkin like? If you've lived here for 50 years, surely you can fill five minutes of a conversation and tell them what Lufkin, Texas is like. Well, one of my best friends is from Detroit, Michigan. He knows, this guy, he knows and loves Detroit culture. He's passionate about it, right? He, he knows all about the city. He knows about the economy. He knows about the food. He knows about the sports teams. He knows the overall state of Detroit because he's been born and raised in Detroit. He grew up there. Therefore, he's qualified to speak on Detroit. Jesus comes from heaven, the place where God dwells. And not only that, but Jesus is heaven's architect. He made it. Who is better qualified to speak about the things of heaven than Jesus, who is God? You know, in verse 31, Jesus is contrasted with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is of the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That might sound derogatory, but it's not. It speaks to the limitations of John the Baptist. He is not privy to the same things that Jesus is privy to since Jesus came from where? Jesus came from heaven. Now, John, we read in John 1, was sent by God, but Jesus came from God and he is God. That's the difference and that is why Jesus must become greater and John the Baptist must become less. In fact, that is why all of us must become less. 
I want to say this twice. I think this is really helpful. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and your trust in him is that as Jesus becomes greater in your life, don't miss this, as Jesus becomes greater in your life and you by necessity become less, you actually, during that process, become more fulfilled, more alive, and more joyful, right? Is that true? Again, that is the beauty of the gospel. As Jesus becomes greater in your life and you become less, you actually become more fulfilled, more alive, and more joyful. That is at the heart of Christian discipleship, namely this call to become less and for Christ to become more in your life, more centralized, more the focus, more the goal in all that you do. Amen? I mean, think of Jesus' own call to discipleship in Mark 8.34. What does he say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. What does that mean? To become less. You're no longer at the center. Who is now at the center of your life? Christ. Why does John emphasize the place of heaven as the place of Jesus? Because he wants us to see, John wants us to see that Jesus speaks with heaven's authority. Is there a higher authority than heaven? Who speaks with heaven's authority? Who came from heaven? Jesus. The place where God rules as king. And this leads to our next point, number three, his proclamation. His proclamation. I told you, all peace. Expect three more peace after this. But don't guess them now, because then you'll lose focus and you'll get distracted. So don't do that. His proclamation, verses 32 to 34, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Whoa. He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he, God, gives the Spirit without measure. So Jesus utters the words of God. Again, because he comes from he comes from God and he is God. Why must we listen to Jesus' words? Why? Why must we listen to Jesus' words? Because they are the words of God. Now, this is helpful. In verses 32 to 34, we learn of the quality and implications of Jesus' words. First, the quality Let's talk about the quality of Jesus' words. In verse 32, we read that Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Where? In heaven. in heaven. Thank you, in heaven. Jesus is qualified to speak of the things of God, the very words of God, because he comes from the place of God, where God rules and reigns. And again, remember, Jesus is he's God. So Jesus' words are heavenly words. That's their quality. Heavenly words. Next, the implications or the implication of Jesus' words. And this applies to our response. To receive Jesus' words is to acknowledge the truthfulness of who? Of God. For Jesus' words are whose words? They're God's words. Now, to reject or deny Jesus' words is to reject or deny God and to call God a liar. So here's the implication. Your relationship 
to Jesus' words is directly related to your relationship with God. And as we'll see toward the end of our time, our relationship to Jesus' words has a direct bearing on our eternity. What you do with those words will affect where you spend in eternity. Do you believe that? Are there any higher words than Jesus' words? No, because he speaks the words of God. Where did he come from? Came from heaven. Came from heaven. You know, I love John's gospel. I've spent a lot of time in John's gospel. I think I told you I've translated all of John's gospel from the Greek into the English. This is a beautiful text, amen? It's a beautiful word. Remember what Jesus, his conversation with his disciples at the end of John 6. John 6 is a long chapter. I think it's 76 verses. And at the end of John 6, I just want to highlight one thing. It's this conversation between Peter and Jesus. And again, it's referring to the words of Jesus. John 6, 67 and 68. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Some who had been following Jesus said, man, th this teaching is just too hard. We're out of here, Jesus. Deuces. See you later. We're gone. We, can't, we just can't deal with it. It's just too much. It's too hard. And so Jesus looked at the disciples and says, are you guys going to go away as well? And I want us to listen to Peter's response. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Oh. <laughs> to that we all say, amen. 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 So again, why must he, Jesus, increase, and why must we decrease? Because Jesus utters the very words of God. Now, let's talk about some application here. What is your relationship? Look at me now, quickly. I want you to hear this. I want you to really think about this question. What is your relationship right now to the words of Jesus? Recall the Great Commission, specifically Matthew 28, verse 20, where Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So being a disciple or a follower of Jesus involves what? Continually coming under whose word? Whose word? Jesus' word. But in order to obey the word of Jesus, you must, you must know what? Where must you be? Where must you live? Again, in order to obey the words of Jesus, you must know the words of Jesus. And where are the words of Jesus found? In the Bible. In the Bible. Our great king has given us his great word, and we must love it greatly. Amen? Our great king has given us his great word, and we must love it greatly. Do you? Do you love it? I would argue that our relationship to the Word, to the Bible, shows whether or not we truly believe that Jesus is the greatest. Because if you believe that He's the greatest, you believe that He speaks the words of God. And therefore, you treasure this, amen? Because this is where the words of God are found. One more observation here. In verse 32 we read, He bears witness to what He's seen and heard, yet no one receives His testimony. This mirrors what Jesus said earlier in John 3.11. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, John is being somewhat hyperbolic. He's exaggerating a little bit in John 3.32 when he says no one receives his testimony because John himself had received 
the testimony of Jesus, right? So what does he mean? Rather, he's making the point that most did not receive his testimony. Who's familiar with the phrase vox populi? It's a Latin phrase, which means the voice of the people. What was the voice of the people during the time of Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. Why is this so tragic and ironic? That the majority of people did not receive the testimony of Jesus. It's because of who Jesus is and where he comes from. He's the Son of God come from heaven. Most qualified to speak to humanity of heavenly things, heavenly truth, God's truth, and yet the majority of the people did not receive him. Why else must Jesus increase in us decrease? Number four, your fourth P, his power. Everybody say power. Who has power? You know, I would encourage you to spend some time reading through Mark's gospel. One of the themes in Mark is the exousia. It's a Greek word for power or authority of Jesus. Mark, who wrote Mark, John Mark, he wants us to see that Jesus' power is matchless. He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to cast out demons. He has the power to steal the storm. He has the power to forgive sin. Who has the power? Jesus. Why must he increase and us decrease? Because he has what? He has power. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he, the Father, gives the Spirit without measure. Who marked Jesus out as the long-awaited Messiah and promised King? Who marked him out? Who, who descended upon Jesus at a very specific event, a very significant event, before his ministry kicked off, which was the sign and the symbol that this is the king? Who was it? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we see this at Jesus' baptism. This is mentioned earlier in John, John 1, 32-34. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, And I've seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. D.A. Carson makes a very interesting observation. He writes, Three centuries after John wrote, Rabbi Aha, isn't that a great name? Rabbi Aha, kind of like the band from the 80s. Nobody, that's all right. <laughs> Rabbi Aha rightly commented that the Holy Spirit, who rested on the prophets, did so according to the measure of each prophet's assignment. So if they had a big assignment, a big measure, a smaller assignment, he would argue maybe a smaller measure. He goes on to write, not so to Jesus. To him, God gives the Spirit without limit. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was given to Jesus without limit, empowering him to complete his kingly mission. And this includes his teaching, his miracles, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. Now, if you're familiar with Isaiah... There's several places where we learn that the Spirit 
is going to be poured out on the promised king to come. And I want to highlight two of those places for you. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation. So how will you know the king has come? When you see the, the spirit come upon him, right? And then Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Again, why must Jesus increase and us decrease? Because he is the spirit-anointed and spirit-empowered king who faithfully completed his mission of living for and dying for God's people. And all God's people said, amen. What else do we learn from our passage? Number five. I kind of cheated here because there's two Ps for point five. His prestige and privilege. We see that in verse 35. His prestige and his privilege. The Father loves the Son. Now think about that. Why should Jesus become greater and us become less? Because the Father loves the Son. Why should we love the Son? Because the Father loves the Son. And he goes on to say, and has given all things into his hand. Honestly, that could have been a whole sermon. Verse 35a, the first half, the Father loves the Son. That could have been a whole sermon. Maybe it should have been. Maybe it will be. Jesus, the Son of God, is loved by the Father. And not only that, but the Father has given all things into his hand. Now, let's unpack this together. That's one of those verses that, you know, we hear it. Okay, yes, good. But I think we read over it. There's so much here in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This verse, I think it, at first glance, may appear strange and out of place when contemplating the question, why must he increase and us decrease? But nothing could be further from the truth. This verse, verse 35, is massively appropriate when considering the question, why? Why must he increase? And why must we decrease? Because Jesus, the Son of God, is the eternal object of God's love. Jesus, the Son of God, is the eternal object of the Father's love. And here's the kicker. Are you ready? Here's the kicker. In order for sinners like us to be brought into that love, Jesus, the Son of God, had to be brought to us. Meaning, he had to leave heaven, come to earth, live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, and be raised from the dead. It is through that work and our faith in that work that we are made partakers of that love. This is a reminder of what we saw earlier in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his what son? His, his monogenes, his only, his only son. That word only, we talked about that several weeks back. It means only, only son. It means unique, one of a kind, nobody else like him. That's what the word means, unique, one of a kind. The father gave up his beloved, unique, one of a kind son for sinners like who? Look around, sinners like us. Furthermore, the Father's immense love for the Son reveals to us that the Son is most lovely, right? 
Isn't that a test case for the son's loveliness? The fact that the father loves him, and if the father loves him, who else should love him? Look around. We should love him. Again, the father's immense love for the son reveals to us that the son is most lovely and therefore most worthy of our love and our affection. Because the father loves the son, so should we. How did the father demonstrate his love for the son? How did he do that? What's the second half of verse 35? By giving all things into his hand. And as we already saw, the father gave the spirit without measure to Jesus. Why? The father gave the son all that he needed to accomplish his saving mission for us. You know, the the generosity of God is all over John's gospel. It's a great theme in John is the generosity of God. If someone's generous, what do they do? Do they hold on to things? No, they, they give things. They give important things, treasured things. God the Father gave the Son all things, and yet He also gave up His Son for us. And not only that, but He, the Father, and the Son give us the Holy Spirit. Oh, as the Son, listen to this, as the Son was given all that He needed to complete His mission, so too are we given all that we need to complete our mission, the Great Commission. We're given the very presence of God. What a good and generous God we serve. Amen? Here's an application question for you. How are you imitating God's generosity towards others? How are you giving of yourself, your time, your money, your resources to serve and care for others and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? Again, why must Jesus increase and we become less? Because, because he is beloved by the Father and because Jesus, get this, Jesus, did he squander the resources that the Father gave him to complete his mission for us? No. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, loved by the Father, here's what he did. He faithfully stewarded, he faithfully stewarded the Father's resources to accomplish his saving mission for us. Now, what of our final point? Number six, the final P, his prize. His prize. Verse 36. Oh, whoever believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's heavy. It's a heavy verse. Let me read it one more time. Whoever believes in the Son has, not will have, but has now eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, what? What? Shall not see life. And the wrath of God remains on him. That's, that's heavy. Jesus gives eternal life. The ultimate prize or gift. Why is Jesus the greatest? Why must he become greater and us become less? Because in him alone is eternal life found. Our greatest need. Amen? Compare this to John 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You know, this truth is emphasized throughout John's gospel. As Peter proclaimed in John 6.68, we already looked at it, Jesus has the words of eternal life. And then John 14.6, we read that Jesus is the what? He's the way, the truth, and the life. 
And finally, in John 20, 31, and this is the purpose statement of John's gospel, we read that by believing in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, we may have life in his name. You know, our our final verse, verse 36, presents us with a great warning. And I want us to hear this warning. I want all to hear this warning, Christian and non-Christian, to hear this warning. Those who defy, those who defy the Son will forever remain objects of God's wrath. Two verbs stand out along with their tenses. The verbs has and remains. Both verbs, both has and remains, those are two verbs that appear in verse 36, both appear in the present tense, which in Greek denotes what kind of action? Ongoing or continuous, right? So the one who believes in Jesus, who is the greatest, has eternal life now. And that life will continue on for how long? Forever. In the same way, listen, in the same way, the one who chooses to disobey the Son of God and not trust in Him for salvation will not see life, but instead will remain forever, how long? Forever an object of God's wrath. Now, who's ever heard of annihilationism? It's a bad doctrine. It's not biblical. In recent years, some have tried to argue that God's punishment for unbelief, his punishment for the unbeliever, the one who refuses to trust in Jesus, is annihilation. The total destruction of the person, mind, body, soul, spirit, all consciousness, gone. They would argue that when you die and you don't trust in Jesus, you just cease to be. No more consciousness. However, that is not the testimony of Scripture. And that is not the testimony of John 3.36. Just as the Bible teaches that the reward, everybody say reward. The reward for those who trust in Jesus Christ is eternal. So too the Bible teaches that the punishment for those who reject Christ is also what? Eternal. Eternity in hell. Away from God for how long? Forever. Why is Jesus the greatest? Why? Why must he become greater in us less? Because he came to save us from the eternal wrath of God. And only he can. That's why he's the greatest. Amen? Amen. Only he can. So trust in Jesus for salvation today. And if you have, if you have, give him praise and glory. Give him the praise and the glory that he is due. Because as we've learned today, he is what? He's the greatest. He's the greatest. Let's pray. Father, in your perfect word, you show us the perfect Savior, Jesus, who is the greatest. Jesus, you are from above, and you are above all. And you speak the words of God. And you came to rescue us from the eternal wrath of God in hell that we so justly deserve. And you did that in love. And we thank you for that good news. And we thank you for this clear vision in your word of who you are. You are the greatest. And I pray that because of that, 
In response, Father, may we give Christ our lives. May we give him our total allegiance. And may that be seen in how we do life with your church, how we do marriage, how we do parenting, how we work. I pray that in all that we do, it would be seen that Jesus is above all in our lives. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would apply the truth that we've heard deep into our hearts. And through it, make us more like Jesus for his glory and our good and our joy. And all God's people said, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen.